Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Aren't you glad for the victory that is ours in Christ? Well, today we're going to look at a passage that helps us understand how we can walk in that victory. We're looking at Jude, verses 17 through 23 today. You may want to get your Bible out and have it open to that passage or find the uh, notes uh, in our Bayside app that will help you track with what we're talking about today. Uh, Our scripture reading, Jude 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. It was on a quiet Tuesday in June of 2001 that two men walked into a store in a busy strip mall in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Uh, It was a store that rented mailboxes for people who needed a temporary place to receive bills or checks or personal mail. A mile away, the usual steady stream of traffic crossed the George Washington uh, Bridge, uh, spanning the Hudson River and a dozen miles downriver at the tip of Manhattan, the twin towers of the World Trade Center poked the sky. At that mailboxes, etc., a now defunct storefront in Fort Lee, The men plunked down an indeterminate amount of cash and were given box 417. FBI agents later learned that they told the clerk that they represented a firm based in Patterson, New Jersey, and that they'd only need the temporary mailbox until the end of September. Their rental of that temporary mailbox here in New Jersey represents just one of thousands of examples of seemingly ordinary movements by the 9-11 killers in the months leading up to the attacks. They lived mostly in in central Florida, in southern California, northern Virginia, and north Jersey, where they rented cars and opened bank accounts and navigated complicated city streets. They rented motel rooms and dialed each other from pay phones. They went to hairstylists and ordered food from diners. They took flying lessons, went, went and played video games. They lifted barbells at gyms, and, and they even purchased sunglasses at a Macy's department store. 
The crowded multicultural hamlets of Bergen and Passaic counties provided a suitable place for them to meet nearly a dozen of them in the summer of 2001. All of the hijackers were living in the United States on legal entrance visas. Not a one of them had adopted a, a false name, nor did they live underground to avoid contact with ordinary Americans. In fact, according to authorities, they were living and hiding in plain sight, simply melting into the general population the way the planes they hijacked melted into the radar of ordinary air traffic on that Tuesday. One of the great lessons of 9-11 is that some of the most devastating attacks are those that come from within. Infiltrators launching a strike from within accomplished what an air force trying to cross our borders could never have pulled off. And after 9-11, we suddenly became concerned about homeland security. We began to put up with the inconvenience of long lines at airports, security checks, taking off our shoes and our belts and putting our toiletries in, in court bags for inspection. We became more vigilant. We learned the importance of reporting anything suspicious. It seems to me that the lessons of 9-11 are good for us to heed in the church as well. Because the most devastating attacks to the church are not usually those that come from the outside. The most destructive attacks are usually inside jobs perpetrated by those who have infiltrated our ranks, hiding in plain sight, or by those who once belonged to us but who have been lured away by anti-Christian ideologies. And what Jude is doing in his little letter is urging a kind of homeland security for the church. He didn't start off with this intention as he wrote. In fact, he, he started off to write a celebration of salvation, but something apparently has happened in the early church that has disturbed him to the point where he feels it necessary to write instead on this treatise for the need to contend for the faith. We've called this little series, Let's Get Ready to Rumble, because in it, Jude wants us to understand that we're in a fight. Just as we were all recruited to participate in the war on terror in the days following 9-11, so Jude urges his readers to be on high alert for the safeguarding of the church in what we could call today a war on error. Last week, uh, in verses 5 through 16, it was like Pastor Ken was putting up the help wanted, or the, the wanted posters, not help wanted, but the wanted posters, uh, warning us of scoundrels to be on the lookout for. False teachers who arrogantly distort the gospel and promote immoral living among believers. They are greedy people and they are manipulators. And so far he has urged us to contend for the faith. He has, he has done a good job of telling us about the enemies of our faith who, who would infiltrate our ranks while hiding in plain sight, the people we should be on the lookout for. And now we come to the real meat of Jude's letter here in verses 17 through 23, because this is where he gives us instruction for the fight, how we are to engage in this war on error. He's saying to us, don't be a bystander. Don't passively stand by while, while these things happen. Don't let these enemies of Christ wreak havoc in the church and shipwreck vulnerable souls, especially your own. He brings us back to the main exhortation of the letter, contend for the faith, but now he tells us how we can do that, how we can actively participate in this war on error. And he gives us in these verses three practical ways that we can contend for the faith. Three practical ways we must contend for the faith. Way number one, remember the apostles' warnings. 
Remember the apostles' warnings. Do you remember after 9-11, one of the slogans that we heard, in fact, we still hear it every September, every time 9-11 comes around again, the slogan, never forget, right? And every, every September 11th, you'll see a meme on Facebook or in social media of, a, of the Twin Towers with never forget. Well, so we are to never forget Remember the apostles' warnings. Be wary. Stay vigilant. Let's not let this happen again. If we're going to keep this from happening, we've got to remember what might happen. We must never forget. Jude says, don't forget what's at stake here. Remember what the apostles predicted. Remember remember what they warned us about, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you, in contrast to those false teachers who clearly aren't paying attention anymore to what the apostles taught, I want you to remember how apostles like Peter and Paul warned us that false teachers would come among us and lead some astray. Don't just take my word for it. Remember what they said. Never forget. They said to you, verse 18, they said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. This is very close to something that Peter himself wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. He said, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. And the apostle Paul taught much the same thing in Acts chapter 20 to the elders at Ephesus in his last sermon to them. And he, and he said, he gave a very similar warning to Timothy in both of his letters, first and second Timothy, there will be scoffers who mock God and his requirements for holy living. Oh, they might say they believe in Jesus, but they distort the gospel to their own advantage. They distort the gospel so they can go on living and doing whatever they want. Oh, God loves you just the way you are. You don't have to change a thing. Just say a prayer and go on living however you want. When the true gospel says, no, God loves you too much to leave you as you are, he wants to take you from spiritual death to spiritual life. He wants to set you free from the guilt and the grip of sin on your life. He wants to empower you to live the life you're always meant to live, a life of obedience that brings glory to God. And scoffers say, no, no, that's too hard. Just just believe in Jesus and live however you want. Paul says, be on your guard. Be wary of these scoffers who dilute the gospel. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit, he says. One of the inevitable byproducts of false teaching will be division in the church. While some are living fully in the grace of Christ, being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, living beautiful lives of obedience that bring glory to Christ. Others are corrupting the church by preaching that Jesus loves and tolerates all manner of immorality and approves sinners who have no attention of turning from their sin. You know, there are whole denominations who are splitting over this right now. I mean, all across America, you've got whole denominations splitting over this. That other gospel not only misses the point of the gospel, that Jesus gave his life for you in order to give his life to you, that he might live his beautiful life through you, it not only misses the point of the gospel, but it demonstrates that these people are worldly, literally soulish. They are tied to this life. They're focused on this world and its values. 
As one of my seminary professors, David Wells, puts it, worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has as its center our fallen human perspective and, and displaces God and his truth from the world and makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. Sound familiar? It, it's, it thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that res, reason makes what is wrong seem normal. We're living in a society where what the church has taught is, is right and wrong for the last 20 centuries has been turned on its head and now what used to be wrong is now right and what used to be right is now wrong. Judah's saying it's bad enough when the world acts worldly. It's devastating when the church comes under the influence of worldliness. Remember how the apostles warned about these worldly scoffers, these false teachers. Oh, they may look, you know, all official, dressed in their clerical robes and turn around collars and, and everything, but, but when the church comes under the influence of such worldly scoffers, it's devastating to the life of the church. They love to brag about how spiritual they are when in fact, Paul, uh, Jude says, they're devoid of the Spirit. They have no true connection to God at all. Paul says in Romans 8 9 that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. They're infiltrators, living in plain sight, fomenting error. Be wary, Judah's saying. Never forget the damage they can do. Remember the apostles' warnings that in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. That's the first way we can contend for the faith. Be wary. Never forget. Remember the apostles' warnings. Here's the second way. We must contend for the faith. Remember the apostles' warnings and then remain committed to the Savior. Remain committed to the Savior. Be wary and be faithful. Do you remember after 9-11, you know, another one of the slogans we heard was don't let the terrorists win, right? Don't let the terrorists win. And what did we mean by that? What we meant was you got to get back to, to the business of living and raising your family and going to school and, and going to church and going to work. One way to fight terrorism is, not, is by not giving in to fear, but to stay the course. Well, so here, Jude is saying, be on your guard against false teachers, be wary, but also get on with the business of living the life you were meant to live in Christ. He says in verse 10, but you, beloved... You, in contrast to those who distort the faith, but you, beloved, remain true to Jesus, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Don't let these false teachers distort the faith and distract you from godly living. You remain committed to Jesus by way of this fourfold exhortation he gives here. Build yourselves up. Upon your most holy faith. Build yourselves upon your most holy faith, that faith once entrusted to all the saints. Don't let the false teachers influence you to build your life on anything or anyone else. Jesus is the foundation we build on. The essence of our faith is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He died for our sins. That makes him our only savior. He rose from the dead. That, that entitles him to be Lord of our lives because only he can give us eternal life. Anything that would influence us to diminish our dependence on Christ for salvation or to diminish his right to rule our lives must be soundly rejected. Build yourselves upon your most holy faith, praying 
in the Holy Spirit. In contrast to the false teachers who don't even have the Spirit, they're devoid of the Spirit, you've got to pray in the Holy Spirit. Somebody said that in order to live, you've got to breathe. And to, to live as a Christian, you've got to pray. Prayer is to the Christian life like breathing is to your physical being. Well, what makes our prayers effective is that we're in Christ and the Spirit of God lives in us. The Spirit connects us in an intimate way with the heart of God. And any prayer worth doing is done in the Spirit that is stimulated by, guided by, infused with the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is an important part of remaining true to the faith and connected to the Savior. One pastor illustrates it this way. He said he came to the church office one day to use the copy machine and found the machine wasn't working. So he called the repair shop and he said, I tried to explain to them, you know, what was going on and, and I didn't get very far because I didn't know the names of parts. I, I couldn't tell them about error codes or almost anything else. And, and so we didn't get very far. The machine didn't get fixed. But what they did do was they sent the technician. And the technician came and he looked at the machine. And what did he do? Well, he called the repair shop. And he started talking with the guy on the other end of the phone, except he knew what to say. He knew all about the error codes and he knew about what parts were needed. And before long, the machine was working again. And this pastor said, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. When we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit knows precisely what we need and prays in a language the Father perfectly understands. Build yourselves up. Build yourselves upon your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. And then he goes on to say, keep yourselves in the love of God. Verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God. God's love for us was once for all irrefutably proven by the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can either turn our back on him, as the false teachers do, and distort the meaning of his life and justify our sin, or we can respond to God's love, embrace Christ fully, love him in return, which means turning from our sin. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. To use God's grace as a license for immorality is to spurn the love of God and to trample underfoot the blood of Jesus who gave his life to set us free from the bondage of sin. So, Paul, uh, so Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep looking ahead. Keep living in anticipation of the salvation that will be yours in all its fullness. The expectation is that the Lord is coming to bring, into, uh, to bring to us the fullness of our salvation and to reward us with eternal life. And we're to live always with that in mind, eagerly, expectantly, and in a manner that befits those who know that they are in need of mercy. Remain committed to Christ. Don't let the false teachers win. Go on with the business of living the life you're meant to live in Christ. Keep growing in the faith. Keep praying in the Spirit. Keep loving Jesus. Keep looking forward to his coming. Contend for the faith. Remember the apostles' warnings. Remain committed to the Savior. And then thirdly, reach out to those at risk of falling. Reach out to those at risk of falling. Be wary, be faithful, and be ready. Be ready to come to the rescue. 
You know, among the 9-11 slogans, you know, we heard not only never forget and don't let the terrorists win, but then there was that slogan that said, you know, we can all do our part. See something, say something, right? Remember that? We can all do our part. See something, say something. Emphasizing there's a great need for a higher level of personal security and awareness. Don't leave your bags unattended. Be aware of your surroundings and speak up if you see anything suspicious. Intervene when you have to. If it weren't for a group of passengers who put the welfare of others ahead of their own, Flight 93 might have hit the Capitol building in Washington instead of taking a nosedive into that field in Pennsylvania. In the war on terror, in our defense of our homeland, we need to be concerned not only for ourselves, but for the safety of those around us. And Jude says much the same thing is true of us as we contend for the faith. And there are at least three kinds of people we need to pay attention to, we need to be on the lookout for. Those who doubt, those who are in danger, and those who are deadly. Well, what about those who doubt? He says in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Uh, Don't reject those who are entertaining doubts. Have mercy on them. Deal with them gently. Encourage them. Doubt is sometimes a necessary prelude to greater knowledge and growth. As George MacDonald once put it, doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. They are the first knock at our door of things that are not yet but have to be understood. So just because another believer is expressing doubts, that doesn't make them the enemy. That means that, that doesn't mean that they're in league with the false teachers. It, it may only mean that they don't yet honestly understand something that needs to be understood. So Jude says, have mercy on them. If you rebuke their doubts and you, you shame them for asking questions, then you open the door to the false teachers who will say, see, they don't really care about the truth. Uh, you, you can't trust them. Come to us. No. When someone expresses doubts, Jude says, show mercy Respond gently, listen carefully. Help them find good answers to their questions or direct them to someone who can. One of our children, almost nightly at the dinner table, would raise whatever skeptical objection to the Christian faith she'd heard at high school that day. I have to admit that on my not-so-good days, I probably shut down her questions with the suggestion that she shouldn't listen to such nonsense. On my better days, I took time to listen to what she was asking, to engage the conversation. We had sometimes had some really great conversations as a result. And and oftentimes we could go to the scriptures to to see what what the scriptures actually taught. A merciful response that takes doubters seriously communicates that our faith has nothing to fear from questions raised by doubters. So when it comes to doubters, Jude says, have mercy, respond gently. But beside those who merely doubt, you have others who are already in danger. They're beyond merely doubting. They've begun to perhaps buy into the lies that will shipwreck their souls. What about them? Well, Jude says in verse 22, save others by snatching them out of the fire. They're already in danger. They've got at least a toe in the fire already They require more direct action. What does it look like to snatch others from the fire? Well, just as an example, in their gullibility, many youth today might believe the internet preacher who affirms any and every lifestyle choice. You know, they've been led to believe 
because someone who purported to be knowledgeable of the scriptures, they've been led to believe that it's not only cool to question their gender or to hook up with their boyfriend or girlfriend or hook up in a same-sex relationship, but, but that God approves. He's good with it all because some preacher on TikTok told them so. And the next thing you know, they're in danger of making choices that will carry consequences for life. I praise God for a children's ministry and a youth ministry here at Bayside that stands against the currents of our culture and dares to say that, you know what, God made you male and God, or God made you female and he made marriage for a man and a woman to be united for a lifetime. So let, let us help you figure out how to live in the truth of who God made you to be and, and to live the good life God wants for you to live, whether as a married person or as a single. At a recent Tuesday evening youth meeting, Interim Director of Student Ministries, Kylie Grady, reported that they gave an altar call and, and students responded, came forward to, to admit that they were struggling with issues like sexual identity and depression, suicide and self-harm, as well as addiction to drugs, alcohol, and pornography. But praise God, six of those teens gave their lives to Christ that night. That's what it looks like when Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Show mercy to those who doubt. Intervene to save others who are in danger. But there's one last kind of person Jude wants us to reach out to, and that's the one who is deadly. The one who is deadly because they're infectious. They become so infected by false teaching that they may seem to be beyond hope, and they become so badly infected that they become spreaders of disease themselves. They're spiritually toxic to the point we might advise the weak to avoid contact with them altogether. They're not just in danger, but they become dangerous to the spiritual health of, health of others. But instead of abandoning such ones to die a slow spiritual death, look what Jude says about them in verse 23. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Mercy mixed with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What's he saying there? Let me use a metaphor to unpack, I think, what he's getting at here. I, th I think he's saying something like, look, you've got to approach those infected with spiritual danger the way a medical professional might approach somebody with a deadly Ebola virus. You show mercy, but mercy mixed with fear. Mercy says, I care about you. I, I want to help you get well. I want to see if we can save your life. But fear says, I need to take precautions so that I don't become infected myself, knowing I could get sick just by close contact, perhaps even touching your infected garments. False teaching that infects churches and normalizes immoral behavior is like a deadly Ebola virus. Well, don't abandon those who become infected, but be afraid, be very afraid when attempting to treat such a victim. Take precautions to suit up carefully to follow protocols that will prevent you from becoming a victim yourself. As Paul puts it in, in Ephesians, you know, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Part of contending for the faith is to reach out in mercy to rescue every victim you can, even some who've gone so far that they've become infectious themselves. It can be risky work, this homeland security business, but if you belong to Jesus, you can't just write off even those who are carriers of potentially deadly error. What if, for instance, you encountered, let's say, a pastor of the Church of Satan? 
Can you imagine someone more spiritually toxic? That infected with error? What would it look like to show one mercy mixed with fear, hating the garment, even the garment stained by the flesh? Well, consider the case of one Rian Swigelar, a co-founder of a South African satanic church, who, according to the Christian Post, took to social media last July to share that the overwhelming love of Jesus recently inspired him to step away from Satanism. He said, I'm doing this video because many are sending me messages wanting to know why did I leave the South African satanic church as well as why did I turn my back on Satanism. The article goes on to talk about how Swigelar did have Christian roots but became disillusioned and then became an atheist for a period of time and then for a period of about three years joined the the satanic church and even became a pastor in it. He said what drew him to Satanism was the commonality of despair of those he met in the satanic church. He said, I resonated with it being very broken and sad, and a lot of people resonate with Satanism because they come from a very broken place. That's the one thing we have in common. And in this video he did, overwhelmed with emotion, Swigelar said that what made a difference for him was he began encountering Christians who showed him genuine love, a love he'd never encountered before. In fact, he encountered not just one, but four Christians, I guess in a short span of time, who had this kind of effect on him that took him off guard. In fact, one of the occasions uh, that he describes, he said uh, it was while, in his own words, I was still a monster, an ugly person, and invited to represent the Church of Satan on the Cape Talk radio station there in South Africa. And it was during the interview he boldly declared, I don't believe in Jesus and I don't believe Jesus Christ exists. But he said following the interview, the interviewer from the station approached him. She came to me after the interview, after I said all that, and she hugged me and she held me in a way that I've never been loved. That's all she did. And then she just said it was nice to meet me in person. Well, on social media, a week later, he found this interviewer's profile and discovered that she was a Christian, which absolutely blew him away, that a Christian would show him that kind of love. And it was encounters with Christians, showing him the love of Jesus that persuaded him, put him on a path whereby he became persuaded that the love of Christ is real. Who would have thought that a hug could be so powerful a weapon in the war on error? You know, contending for the faith in a time like this isn't only for the great apologists of the faith who take the stage and debate atheistic professors at a university. You know, I suppose that's like those who who signed up right after 9-11 to go fight the war on terror in, on the front lines in Afghanistan or Iraq. You know, there are frontliners like that who are genuine heroes. But after 9-11, we weren't all asked to go to Afghanistan. We weren't all asked to go to, to Iraq, but we were all asked to participate in the war on terror. Never forget, don't let the terrorists win. See something, say something. 
So Jude is recruiting us all to join in the war on error. Be wary. Be faithful. Be ready. Remember the apostles' warnings. Remain committed to the Savior. Reach out to those who are at risk, those who doubt, those in danger, and yes, even those who are deadly. You know, we've been fighting the war on terror now for over 20 years, and I suppose we will have to remain vigilant until Jesus comes again to set all things right and make all things new. And I can't wait for that day, can you? Well, the church has been fighting the war on error now for over 20 centuries. And the need for vigilance is perhaps greater today than it's ever been. Certainly at least as great as when Jude wrote this letter. Be wary. Be faithful. Be ready. Contend for the faith, but do not be afraid. For our Lord is able to keep us from falling, and he will present us before the Father one day with great joy. More about that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful little book of Jude, for the way it raises issues that are so relevant to our context today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take to heart the exhortation of this letter, that we would actively engage in the war on error, that we would be vigilant for those infiltrators, those who would, who would distort the faith, those who are perhaps even now hiding in plain sight. But Lord, I pray that you would, uh, that you would help us to remember the exhortation of the apostles about scoffers who had come in the last days, that you would help us to remain committed and faithful to Jesus, keep growing in him, and that you would help us be ready to take a risk and reach out to those who are in danger. Lord, I pray that, that you would protect Bayside Chapel from error, that this would always be the kind of place where, where you know that you could trust what you're hearing from the pulpit because you can see it in the Word of God. Lord, I pray that, <clears throat> that we might remain faithful to Jesus until he comes again and in all things bring him glory. Amen.